Well, those of you who have children will understand very well the idea of partial obedience. Yeah? You get that? Kids, you know, how many times have I told you? Because they only do a little bit of what you've actually asked them to do. So it's amazing, isn't it? Do you remember that thing when you were young? And you've probably done it now that you've grown older and uh, maybe had children of your own. You say to a child, tidy your room. I can hear my mother now shouting up the stairs, Mark, tidy your bedroom. And 30 seconds later, I'd be downstairs, all done. And if she came up, oh boy, I'd be in trouble. Because all I'd done was move the pile of dirty clothes and my rugby kit that hadn't been washed for a month and taken it from one pile and put it in another pile under the bed. Because we all know if you can't see it, that's it. Everything's fine. The problem was I was only partially obeying. I was only doing a little bit about what my mum really wanted her to do. Now, that example's a bit corny, but it very clearly reveals that there is something in all of us, isn't there, that kind of looks for an easy option. We can all identify with that. Somebody might ask us to do something, but in reality, we'll try and find a way that's going to be easier to follow it. And the same is true with God. When God asks us to do something, if you take a long look at yourself for a moment, you know when God asks you to do something, you do exactly the same with him. Well, I know I do. I'll find a way to just try and weave my way through it a little bit easier. The problem is, When you read God's word, it's very clear. Partial obedience is disobedience. That's the be-all and end-all of it. Partial obedience is disobedience. And partial obedience can take on a number of different forms. Sometimes we pick and choose the commands that we obey. We obey the ones that we like and ignore the ones that we think are unreasonable or difficult or expensive or unpopular. So perhaps I'll attend church regularly, but, well, we won't give God our first and best when it comes to our offering. Or sometimes we obey most of what God commands, but we justify our lack of complete obedience by, I don't know, interpreting God's word in a way so that we can justify or excuse the part of the command that we've chosen to disobey. So, for instance, when somebody upsets you, you might obey God's command to forgive them, yeah? We've all done that. But how many times have you said to yourself, only when they come and say sorry? So we interpret it in a certain kind of way, so that it's easier for us. Sometimes we do do what God says. Sometimes. Some of the time. And a lot of us do that. We put on a good face and live for Jesus really, really well at 11 till 12.15 and 6 until about 7.15 
on a Sunday. The rest of the week, oh, what happens? Well, who knows? So just to underline the point here again, anytime I don't do what God says fully, a kind of partial obedience is actually disobedience in his eyes. Now hold on to that. We're going to explore a lovely passage of Scripture, which Victoria is going to read in three chunks for us this evening. So why don't you get a Bible? Because it would be really good to follow this in a Bible tonight. Maybe you've got a Bible app on your phone. Open that. There's a Bible at the end of every pew. I want to encourage you, get into the Old Testament, into the first book of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to look at this together this evening. So Victoria's going to come and she's just going to read for us firstly the first three verses. The Lord rejects Saul as king. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all, thing, all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Thank you. Now, let's just uh, cut to the chase here. No doubt that command offends some of our sensibilities here in the 21st century. And lots of people have conversations with me, you know, your faith in this God, you know, I read the Old Testament, he's a violent God, commanding the children and animals and everything get, get killed. Well, okay, we're not going to get into all of that tonight. But the thing is this, it's a very, very interesting passage that we've got in front of us. If you look carefully at your Bible, uh, you'll probably realize that there is clarity in what God says there, isn't there? It's, it, you, 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 it's clear. It's as clear as day what God is saying to Saul. Saul understands, doesn't he? He, he does. He, he would understand fully what God is saying. Now, the Amalekites are an interesting bunch. The Amalekites, um, they were in the southern part of Canaan. And back in the day when the Israelites had left Egypt and set out towards Canaan, um, they ended up being a, a bedraggled bunch. I mean, it's not, it's not a half-hour thing that you see in a Charlton Heston movie, you know? It, it took years, we know that. It took years of wandering and everything, and they were exhausted. They, they were beleaguered, they were disgruntled, they were at their lowest ebb, and... Murphy's law, isn't it? At your lowest ebb is when you get attacked. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. At their lowest ebb, the Amalekites raid them and attack them viciously. And God speaks to Israel at that time. And he gives them very, very specific instructions about what the Israelites are to go and do to the Amalekites once they've gathered their strength again, uh, having settled in the Promised Land. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 
This is what God says to Israel. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. So you can see what happened. There were some lagging behind the Amalekites came in and they just picked off the weak ones in particular. Uh, and uh, therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, so when you've got your strength back, you've had your little holiday, when you know, vitamin D has kicked in and all of that, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So, hundreds of years before the incident that we're now looking at in 1 Samuel 15, this is what God had told Israel to do. God is basically saying to Israel, these Amalekites attacked you to your lowest ebb, we're going to get them. And he told them, you are to wipe them from the face of the earth. You are to blot out the memory of Amalek. Nobody's going to worry about these people ever again. Problem is, the Israelites only partially obeyed. How do we know that? Well, we know that because here they are again in 1 Samuel 15. They've shown up again. Their memory has not been blotted out at all, has it? They've shown up. And they should have been blotted out, but the Israelites hadn't fully carried out God's commands. So here's God, 1 Samuel 15, commanding them to finish the job. Do what they should have done hundreds of years earlier. So you see, Israel had a problem. Partial obedience. It's a historical problem. Victoria's going to come back and read for us verses 4 through 9. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them to Tel Aim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agig, Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Can you work tonight, Victoria? Yes, thank you. <laughs> So do you see it? You're getting the gist of it now, aren't you? You can see there's partial obedience again going on here. In other words, there's disobedience. They're not doing what God's telling them. Saul gathers up an army, 200,000 men uh, from the northern tribes, 10,000 from Judah. Then look what happens. If you look at the text, he warns the Kenites to leave. Now, the Kenites lived among the Amalekites. Uh, they'd... Uh, uh, treated Israel very favorably in the past, so Saul 
goes and has a word with them and he says, hey boys, I want to give you the heads up here. We're going to come and attack the Amalekites. You want to be, might want to be out of town for the day when we do that. And that's what he does. So again, he's only partially obeying what God had told him to do. Then, notice, he took King Agag alive. What did God said? God had said, you wipe them out. You kill them. Get rid of them. I think I know what Saul was doing here, actually. It's incredibly indulgent on his part. This is, I mean, think about it, keeping the enemy king alive. And, well, it's like a trophy for Saul's military cabinet, isn't it? It's him being able to say, look how good I am. Here's proof of it. Who've I got in prison? Yeah, King Agag, the Amalekite king. Like a hunter might display the, the head of prey over the fireplace in his home. Saul's, ah, he's only partially doing what God asked him to do. And notice also, he didn't kill all the livestock. Did you see that? He was instructed to kill all the livestock, but he didn't. Again, a self-serving move, endearing Saul to the people. Oh, King Saul, he's amazing. Because if you know your Old Testament sacrifice rules, you'll know that they provided that everybody got to eat meat uh, that was sacrificed. So they, they were able to enjoy a nice big juicy T-bone, everybody, and, uh, you know, no expense to them. It also meant, of course, that they wouldn't have to use their own animals for the sacrifice. So they, uh, everybody's quids in and full bellies to boot. But again, boil it all down. Saul's only partially obeying what God told him to do. It's not surprising then that Saul falls out with God. God isn't happy with him. And Victoria's going to come and read the rest of the chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. 
The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of adultery. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned and violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Thanks, Victoria. It always gets me that passage. It's a hard one. The fact that God regrets something that he did. You ever thought about that? There we read that God regretted something that he'd done. How sad is that? Saul, though, <laughs> Saul is very proud of what he's done. Even though he's compromised every step of the way, as we've seen, only partially obeying the command God has given him, where is Saul now? He's blinking building a monument of himself in Carmel. When Samuel shows up to tick him off, you notice that Saul brags to him about how he'd done all that God had commanded. When Samuel reminds Saul that he was instructed to kill all the livestock, Saul claims that, well, he simply spared the best in order to make an offering to God. Heck is like. And Saul continues, doesn't he? continues to insist that, yes, yes, he'd obeyed God. It was the people that disobeyed. The soldiers had got it wrong. He's like a toddler trying to find excuses for everything that he has failed to do. Samuel's having none of it. And he reminds Saul that obedience is better than sacrifice. In other words, the ends don't justify the means, boy. And the condition of the heart determines the value and worth of a sacrifice. Gotcha. It's like Samuel finally manages to corner him. Saul finally admits that he's mucked up. He's miles from truly repenting about it. He's got loads and loads of excuses for his disobedience, blaming it on his fear of the people mainly. Verse 30, 
Saul again admits his sin, but then he immediately turns to Samuel. And you notice he asks Samuel, oh, come to, come to worship with me. Come on. Let's put this sin business behind us. Come on, let's do it now. Come on, there'll be a good opportunity for a press conference. We'll have photo opportunity and everything. Everything will be fine. Saul. Saul, Saul, Saul. He didn't understand it, did he? In God's kingdom... Partial obedience is disobedience. You can't fudge it with God. You're either in or you're not. So the obvious question we want to answer this evening is this. What can I do to make sure that I fully obey God? Rather than finding this convenient path around things. Rather than fudging things with him. Well, let's see what we can learn from Saul's example uh, about some things we should and shouldn't do if we want to fully obey God. I'm going to begin with an overall principle, and then we'll look at some of the components of that. Is that all right with you? Yes? You still awake? Michael, you look as if you're nodding off some. Okay. Here's the overall principle for you. This is what you need to get into your noggin. I need to mold my life to what God says. Not try and mold what God says to my life. That's very, very important. That's the overriding principle. We mold our lives to what God says. We don't mold what God says to my life. Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen Saul try and manipulate what God has said and try and make it fit what he's already decided he wants to do. And it won't be the last either. There are some pretty serious repercussions, both for Saul and for the nation of Israel, as a result of all of this. But uh, let me give you, very quickly, five things that Saul did that led to him trying to mold God's word to his life, rather than the other way around. And hopefully we'll see how we can combat those things uh, in our own lives. The first thing is this. Saul got it wrong. Fundamentally, he should have feared God, not men. That's, that's where he made a big mistake. Throughout this passage, you see that Saul's more afraid of what the adoring public are thinking about him than about what God thinks about him. And some of us are the same. It matters more to us what our family and friends think of us, our colleagues think of us, than what God thinks of us. And unless we get that right and sorted, how can we fully obey God? See, Saul's constantly thinking about how he can twist what God says just enough so that people like him a bit more. So, for instance, even though God had commanded all the livestock would be killed, Saul figured, ah, what harm could there be in saving some of the best People get a good meal, save their own animals. Well, the yeah, problem is, Saul, you're only partially obeying what God commanded you to do. And that's the reality, isn't it? He was far more concerned about what the people thought than obeying God. Uh, sometimes as a parent, we really do know best. That's true, isn't it? 
we want to give our kids space to live their lives, make their own decisions. Of course we do. And my heart breaks for them because it's not hard to see the long-term harm some of their decisions are likely to bring to their lives. And I can just imagine that God, our Heavenly Father, can see the harm that lies ahead of His children by the decisions we make. So am I going to let the fear of God or the fear of man guide my decision-making? Got to sort that out. Saul had to sort it out, and we've got to. The second thing is this. Saul needs to learn. You've got to follow God's desires, not your own. It's just about obeying God's will. As we said earlier, from our perspective, look, God's command to completely wipe out the Amalekites, that's harsh. We don't like things like that in our 21st century ears. So what, then, if, if Saul just held back a little because he wanted to show some compassion? That would be understandable, wouldn't it? Of course it would. Be careful, though, because you've got to read the text properly. Because the fact is, you read the passage carefully, you'll see that he actually had no qualms at all about killing the women and children. So his excuse just doesn't hold water. He's only partially obeying God's command. Keeping that king alive was not what he should have done. He, per he spared King Agag because he could parade him around to impress people. He spared the best of the livestock because it would score him points in the popularity contest with the people. See, the problem with Saul did is that he incre incredibly selfish. Everything that he did that stopped short of total obedience was to serve his own self-interests without any concern whatsoever for what God wanted. Play that to our own lives for a minute. There are some commands in the Bible that just don't make sense to us. It is unnatural to bless somebody when they insult you. We are blessing. Yeah, that's not a natural thing to do, is it? To bless somebody when they insult you. Yet the command of Scripture is that's exactly what you should do. It is not natural for us to pray for our enemies. <laughs> pray for our enemies. And yet that's what the command of Scripture is. It's not natural to forgive another person who hurts you over and over again. No, but Jesus said you should forgive over and over and over and over and over again. God has spoken. If you're only interested in promoting yourself, your own self-interests, then this Christianity stuff ain't going to work for you. It's all about him. It's all about honoring him. It's about fearing him more than anybody else. I'm far more interested in God's opinion of me than any one of you. God bless you, but I am. And I want to follow God's will, not mine, because sometimes I get it wrong. The third thing is this. Saul needed to learn, you've got to go for God's glory. This, this isn't about you. After the, the great victory over the Amalekites, Saul blinking erects this huge monument to himself. 
Not to the God who's given victory to the Israelites. No, no, himself. Plonker. Honestly. Well, that's what he goes and does. More interested in making a name for himself than making a name for God. That's why Samuel has to remind Saul in verse 17. The only reason he became king in the first place was because God put him there. Oh, David, uh, Saul, sorry, wanted the limelight. He wanted the glory for himself. Recognize that in yourself? One of the areas where I regularly see that play out is in churches today. As if churches are in competition with each other. You want to see ministers at Ministers Fraternals. Ooh. It can be quite vicious. Federations and unions and associations foster it all by asking, Sylvia's been at it now, you filled in a survey this morning, didn't you? How many 11 to 13-year-olds have you got? How many 13 to 18-year-olds have you got? How many baptisms have you had? How many million pounds have you got in your coffers? In my experience, none of that gives God any glory. We ought to be celebrating the fact that there are other churches in Risca faithfully preaching the word of God, where there are people coming into a relationship with Jesus, where they're being discipled. I don't want to lament that. If somebody is happier in another church, God bless them. Wonderful. We need to be making sure that God and not anyone else or anything else gets the glory. And in Mariah, we'll make sure of that, won't we, friends? Because it's about him. The fourth thing, we've got to listen to God. Uh, my prayer always is that God will speak through me to you. Test everything that I'm sharing with you every week from Scripture. Test it yourself. Go into the Word. Look at it. Because you've got to listen to what God is saying. Now, we spent some time looking at this last week, so I'm not going to say too much about it. But if you look at verses 22 and 23, in verse 22, we see that God delights in seeing obedience more than in religious activities. Please hear that. God is far more interested in your obedience on Wednesday than whether you came to chapel tonight. Far more interested in your obedience than that. Verse 23, Samuel compares disobedience to divination and to idolatry. Divination was about seeking to know what to do, but with no reference, of course, to God. In today's culture, you'd say it was things like horoscopes. Christians should not be reading horoscopes. Going to psychics. Christians should not be going to psychics. Doing Ouija boards and stuff. I know a lot of this stuff is in with a certain older generation as much as a younger generation. These things are very dangerous and how can we expect to hear God's voice if all of these things are clamoring for our attention when we choose to consult ourselves above God we not only become guilty of divination we go way beyond that we become idolaters by making an idol of self fifth and final thing this is fascinating have you noticed the lack of repentance in this passage it's fascinating to see, as you go through it, Saul, Saul's a very religious guy. 
He actually seems to delight in engaging in religious activities, making sacrifices, going to worship. Why? Because he thinks he can just do whatever he wants. And, well, when he, you know, by doing these religious acts, I'll make everything all right with God. Yeah, yeah. The issue in this passage is there's absolutely no repentance. He admits his sin. He never exhibits any real sorrow over it, though. And he doesn't take any action to genuinely repent, turn away from what was wrong, and return fully to God. No, he doesn't. <coughs> In order to do that, you've got to use this. But you also need to act. Paul knew that. He, he said to Agrippa, didn't he? Do you remember that lovely passage in, in Acts chapter 26? O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. If you are repentant of something, you will stop doing it. There's no evidence in this passage that Saul changed his mind or his behavior. Me, 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 me. He wants to, look at this, he wants to go and worship. Look at, look at that bit very carefully in the passage. He wants to go to worship with Samuel, put on a show for the people. He's still not willing to do what God has told him to do. But again, Samuel has to go and kill King Agag. My fear is today, my friends, is that we could be a bunch of people who live just like this. We figure that we can pretty well live our lives the way we want all week as long as we come to church on Sunday. Or even better, put a little bit in the offering plate. But that will in some way make us okay with God. It doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. You can, you can say a prayer by rote. You can repeat some magic phrases. From cover to cover, the Bible's very clear. God is more interested in our heart than our religious acts. And that's why in God's kingdom, partial obedience is disobedience. Now that's the way God's kingdom operates. So it's not surprising, is it, that our relationship with God also depends on total obedience. God could have chosen any method he wanted for our sins to be, be forgiven so that we could come into a relationship with him. What did he decide? In his infinite wisdom, he chose to do that through his son, Jesus Christ. Sent him to this earth to take on a body of flesh and die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And then Jesus, of course, rose from the grave to prove that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. So if you've been trying to get right with God by any other means, I'm sorry, it ain't going to work. You can be a goody two-shoes, you can come to chapel, but this is about your heart. And Saul's heart was far from God. He needed to get right with God. And that's the point. You and I need to come to God in repentance and we need to turn to him 
and ask him to forgive us and to help us stop pussyfooting around with this thing called faith. To put aside partial obedience and to go for full obedience. Constantly molding life to what God says. Applying the principles that we've learned together this evening. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that's an easy thing to do. It's not. I'm still struggling with it myself. But what I can tell you is based on the word of God, the blessings that come from living a life of obedience. Wow! Amazing. So I want to challenge you. What's God saying to you? What's God been saying to you, even as I've been speaking this evening? What area of your life has come to light as I've been talking? Maybe there's something in particular right now. You know you've been partially obedient to what God wants. Well, I challenge you, tonight, before you leave this place, sort it. Get your heart right with God over that matter and go for obedience in full surrender to the Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads. I just want to give you a moment. There may well be something that has come to your mind as I've been speaking this evening where you recognize you've only been partially obedient to something God has challenged you with. There may be a particular area of your life, a habit or a relationship. I don't know what it is, but I guess in a congregation of this size, there will be those of us for whom this is a very real challenge. We can't pussyfoot around anymore. We've got to get serious with God. Partial obedience is disobedience. What is God saying to you? Let's just be still for a few moments. We're going to allow God by his spirit just to bring those things to your mind. And you can deal with them. You can just say to God how sorry you are. Ask him to help you. Ask him to help you stop being partially obedient. Stop molding things to suit your own ends. Invite him to be Lord of your life, to lead you and guide you.